Hi, everyone. Welcome to Scene, a podcast of the Erasing Shame podcast. Erasing Shame is a podcast about honest talk for healthy living. And Scene explores some of the dynamics and systemic shame that happens when we are minorities um, in the Asian American experience. My name is Eunice Lee. I am a co-host from season one with DJ Chuang. And I'm really excited to be here today. Talk about um, in this in this podcast series, we're going to talk about subjects as big as the minority experience and Hollywood representation to as personal as anxiety and what to do after we've erased shame, how to live wholeheartedly um, as we continue to go on through life. Um, so I'm really excited here today to talk to my friend um, and journalist, Rebecca Sun. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Eunice. Uh, Rebecca is a senior reporter at The Hollywood Reporter, where she covers a business of entertainment and writes about inclusion and representation in the media. Prior to moving to LA in January 2013, she spent eight years as a writer and editor at Sports Illustrated in New York. A native of the Bay Area, she earned a master's degree in journalism from NYU and a bachelor's in biology and English from Duke University. So welcome. I like so I've you know we've known each other for a bit and I've kind of followed your career. I knew that you were doing all the inclusion stuff. Um, but I think I got to know you on like a professional level when you were on the podcast, My Name is Bruce with Angry Asian Man, and um, who I know is, and yeah, what's his name, Jeff Yang? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Jeff I know Yang him. and uh, Phil, Phil, Phil is Angry Asian Man. Yeah, yep. I just know him as Hudson Yang's dad. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure he'll love that. <laughs> he does, he's very proud of it. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I just, the way that you were able to, the first episode you did was Ghost in a Shell, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you yeah. did Crazy Rich Asians, and you also wrote that cover story for uh, Hollywood Reporter with an all-Asian mm-hmm. cast. Um, mm-hmm. So what was that like? That was amazing. Being able to do a cover story where you're talking about the first movie in a quarter century to feature an all-Westernized Asian cast. Mm-hmm. Um, we did that photo shoot in Beverly Hills, or no, I'm sorry, it was like Bel Air. It was like some like gorgeous abandoned mansion and just standing around watching, you know, the THR's top notch styling and photography team, you know, do this elaborate staging for these four Asians. So it was uh, director John M. Chu and then three leads, um, holding Constance Wu and, you know, the legendary Michelle Yeoh. And the best resources we have being committed to people who actually look like me and share my mm-hmm. same background, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, to be able to have, convert, like, prof, you know, in a work context, have this two-hour phone interview with John Chu where we're talking about growing up in the Bay Area as Chinese Americans and be like, this is my job job and it's not for like a little throwaway q a it's for like a, a huge cover story it was it was awesome it's kind of nice to know that we're like this is a movie that's not like a pity movie like mm-hmm. that people legitimately find to be a good quality movie and they would watch it even if it's not like you know you know yeah even if it wasn't like amazing one of the like very very consistent through lines that i discovered once the movie had opened every single asian american like writer you know, who wrote about Crazy Rich Asians, like their Crazy Rich Asians piece, every single one starts with, I walked into the theater with dread or mm-hmm. like whatever, because going in, I was like, please be good. Or no, not even please be good. Please don't suck. Please don't suck. Please don't <laughs> suck. And so many people, like so many um, Asian American friends of mine had the same apprehension. We knew it needed to do well. We, we had never seen a commercially successful 
commercially viable, glossy, high quality movie with people that both look like us and sounded like us, right? Mm -hmm. You got to choose one or the other. Like yeah. if they look like you, they ain't speaking English. You know what I mean? And so, like, <laughs> so, no, I love that. um, that's such a great <laughs> so that's what, you know, we were all nervous. It was actually, it's an amazing, it's a, a super worthy entrant into not just the this tiny canon of Asian American film, but to, to the romantic comedy genre. It's the most successful mm -hmm. rom-com in a decade, which is huge. Yeah. And it's, it's a legit quality movie, which is why people went and bought that second day. Yeah. Um, and not just Asians. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's great. I mean, I, I remember sitting in the theater and being really anxious and mm -hmm. wondering if it's gonna, you know, and and I remember there was that one scene where they're talking next to the docks or something like that where I think that's when it hit me is that when I forgot that Constance and Henry were Asian, mm -hmm. because I think I would, if I saw him in real life, not notice, but mm -hmm. seeing in the movies, it seems so weird to see right. people that look like me. And that's when it kind of hit for me, like, oh, wow, like this is, it, I think like I got teary thinking like, this is a norm now. It's normal to look like me. Right. For me, the moment that I got teary eyed was actually earlier in the film when Nick and Rachel first get to Singapore and, you know, um, their friends Colin and Araminta take them to the Hawker Center and they eat street food. And they're basically four young people enjoying a night out. However, we had never seen that represented on screen, right? Like if you're an Asian American uh, in a movie, you had to like, it had to be something about being Asian and to just be represented in such a normal way mm -hmm. um, was so moving. You know, it was, so, it was such an acknowledgement of like, I see you. Mm -hmm. This is worth everybody else seeing too, you know? Um, you know, the, the, like the fact that, you know, this podcast talks about examining shame. Why did so many of us feel anxious and apprehensive going into this movie before we saw it? It's because we've been conditioned to feel embarrassed when we see Asian people on screen. It's because we are conditioned to brace for either being the deliberate butt of a joke, right? So to be like, oh my God, here I am. Here's the comic relief. It's the bad accent and the like weird, you know, Ajima Per. So I think that all of that, all of that misrepresentation has um, developed a sense of shame in Asian Americans when we, when we, um, when it comes to representation, we are automatically like, oh God, let's brace ourselves. And yeah. that's why we all had that shared same feeling before the movie started. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I think that there are probably, you could probably pinpoint some of the ways that in the small amount of time that we get on screen as Asian Americans, there are certain like, um, like um, characters that we even like the idea of having like, attractive Asian male on screen. I think that's mm -hmm. probably really empowering to be like, oh, I'm not like, um, you know, I'm all Asian men aren't losers and all Asian men aren't like, you know, caricatures right. more asians on screen in general than it takes the burden off of, then, then you're allowed to represent a ton of things right so mm -hmm. that was one of the things that um <clears throat> crazy rich asians was able to do because mm -hmm. every single character was asian you could have a guy who was like a little buffoonish mm -hmm. because that's not the only asian male character he's not the asian buffoon he's just a buffoon he's not a, he's not an asian jackass he's just a jackass you yeah. know what i mean I think that those archetypes were something that, um, you know, John Chu deliberately played with because, you know, the first time you see Ken Jeong's character, mm -hmm. 
when um, these are all spoilers for the movie, so I'm assuming people <laughs> saw it. But um, if you haven't, why are you listening to this podcast about Asians? <laughs> but um, you know, when you first meet him, you know he he's um, hosting Rachel for lunch, and he's in this like extremely cringeworthy, like broken, hesitant English accent, and the, you know it's so awkward. It's everybody is so uncomfortable. Everybody around the table is uncomfortable. The audience is uncomfortable, and then he like you know starts laughing. He's like, I'm just messing with you. Like, of course I don't have an accent. And you know, that's like a little bit of a lampshade. Mm-hmm. To, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wink. I'm wondering, cause you grew up in, in the Bay area, if you felt that. You know, I think that growing up in the Bay area, which is having the privilege of not being a part of a tiny minority, you know, I, I wouldn't say that we were like over 50%, but it was significant enough where, you know, um, I, I didn't have the same as, as somebody who grew up in Virginia, you know, mm-hmm. because there were so many Asians, there were enough Asians where there wasn't just one cliche or stereotype of what an Asian was. So if you remember that scene in New Girls, we had like the Asian cheerleaders, we had like the Asian jocks, we had the cool Asians, we had like the cool studious Asians, and then the fobby studious Asians, like it was all like, it was, a, it was like multiple hierarchy. So many choices. So That's many awesome. choices. It was so many choices. Um, I think though that, and, and, you know, I mean, I was so, I was never not proud of being Asian American. Um, I think in a weird way, I almost, and this was just me individually as a personality is there. I, I, I do remember a moment in high school where I was like, uh, I don't want to like be seen as like just part of the horde because <laughs> we had so many Asians that there was like a horde, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I wanted to sort of be like seen as an individual or whatever and so Mm -hmm. it's where everybody else was listening to like kai Uh, like i was like no i like the smashing pumpkin (laughs) but again wasn't the only matthews band yeah yeah i never went that far (laughs) but um you know but that was that was just uh my thing but Mm -hmm. i was really lucky through a significant period where i was like ashamed of being asian because i was the only one not to say that, I mean, every, I don't think there's a single Asian growing up in America who has not been called it a racial epithet at one point. So of course that's happened to me. You know, going to college in North Carolina, I think was the first time I, I really was a, a, an ethnic minority. Um, but what was interesting was um, I was very involved in my campus ministry, which again, because of geography was, was mostly white Christians. And, you know, so I considered these, these were friends. I consider them brothers and sisters in Christ, but mm-hmm. uh, there's all these significant differences. And um, one summer I went on a missions trip to Asia with a bunch of my white you know, college classmates. And that's when I experienced yellow rage for the first time because I was, because you know, again, I have to recognize that I had the privilege of having gone overseas before and things like that. For many of them was their first time outside the country. Mm-hmm. And I to explain like every single every single meat dish that hit the table is like what kind of meat is this i'm like guys it's chicken if it looks like chicken it's a chicken like they don't you know and and i would get so indignant right at at feeling and and i realized too why it was because that experience was the first time i was like oh oh we're not like each other and if you don't like this and you're associating me with this then that means that you're otherizing me like yeah if you think that this is weird but i don't think it's weird then that means you think i'm weird yeah, yeah. you know sort of correlation so 
I think that there comes like, um, and you know, last week I talked to Adrian Pei who wrote The Minority Experience and he really identified it. It comes a weariness of having to explain our existence so many times mm-hmm. and explain why we do the things we do and, you know, why we're okay. And I think that what I really liked about, you know, I watched, I, I think you did too. I watched Searching mm-hmm. um, with John Cho and, um, and you know, and Crazy Rich Asians. And it was like, oh, so there's actually finally an absence of that feeling like I have to take what I'm seeing on screen, translate it. And then if anyone asks me, translate it back. Is it like we're always constantly translating, not yeah. language wise, but culture wise. That's exactly right. I mean, I think that what was so amazing about Crazy Rich Asians and Searching coming out within weeks of one another was they represented in rapid succession the the ideal evolution of where we our community want should want to go in terms of representation. Mm-hmm. Crazy Rich Asians already did a lot of really significant and great things, which was um, although it has Asians in the title and it is directly an exploration of Asian American identity. Um, you know, explicitly. So uh, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of things where I think a less savvy filmmaker would have like stopped to explain. They never explained at any point. Did they say like, wow, why does everybody in Singapore speak such good English? Mm -hmm. That was a deliberate choice um, by John Chu and the filmmakers. There was a debate about that, you know? Mm -hmm. They were like, should we explain? But they were like, no, let's not cater to the lowest common denominator here. You should know this or you should just look it up. Um, Should we explain how to play Mahjong? No, you get it. If you don't get it, then like that's fine. You understand the spirit of it, yeah. And um, and then searching, taking that a step further, which was having representation that is so normal that it doesn't even need to be commented on. The movie mm-hmm. takes place in San Jose, so if you throw it hit, throw a dart, most likely you're talking about a family that's you know Asian American. Um, mm-hmm. It it's just it's it's reality. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, searching is sort of the type of model that, that we want to see, which is meaningful representation where, um, you know, the, the, that family is not whitewashed in any way. You know, yeah. um, that movie is so beautifully layered. If you oh notice gosh, yeah. looking on the screen in terms of like the text and stuff like that, like on his caller ID, he has his mom saved as umma within mm-hmm. the, with the Korean characters. And um, when he texts with his brother in English, they refer to their parents instead of saying yeah. mom and dad, they say Oma and Appa. Like, that's how my Korean friends, mm-hmm. you know, in my, in my experience, that's how my Korean friends refer to their parents, my Korean American yeah. friends. And, mm-hmm. you know, but it's just, it's just natural. Like, it yeah. doesn't need to be pointed to, but it's just, it is who they are. As a Korean American, that, like, seeing a Korean American face, like, it speaks to me in a way that I can't even um say in words like Mm -hmm. it's just like this is this is like part of my blood that's up there you know even Mm -hmm. though we're not related and i feel like crazy rich asians like i've been listening to that um that song yellow by Catherine Mm -hmm. ho on repeat and i don't even understand what she's saying but it's just something that like speaks to a visceral part of our ourselves and i think what was so great about um your article and just some of the things that you've you've written in your investment in this um the Asian American representation is that you're giving words to something that we all feel, but don't know mm. how to explain. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I, I'm th- so thankful that, you know, the small thing that I can do can do that. And, and that's indeed why representation, why all of this on-screen representation matters. It articulates, it gives words or it gives visuals. 
to experiences that we feel and it validates them. It's, it's sort of like, it's, it's literally like a mirror, you know, we, we need, we look, why, why do we check ourselves out in a mirror to sort of make sure that what we're feeling is indeed what's being presented as being understood, right. Is, is being conveyed accurately. Um, and so when you don't have representation, it's like you're, you've been walking through this world without a mirror and you are, you are completely not in control of how you're being perceived. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. You know, it's just other people's caricatures, like other people's like police sketch drawings of what you look like. It's mm -hmm. like that, or like those political, you know, like all the way back yeah. to like, I mean, this is like, we're talking about like, you know, <clears throat> Chinese Americans building the railroads, Japanese Americans, you know, during World War II, like, you know, our media portrayals were racist. We, our earliest media portrayals as Asian Americans were as racist caricatures, mm -hmm. you know, and not being able to control our own image for as long as we've existed, you know, um, yeah. has, has been something that has left very like systemic and very personal and deep effects on our experiences. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like it perpetuates that, that shame and that part of our identity that we want to keep hidden because it's been so caricatured throughout history? It can, you know, I think that there's Asian Americans. So every um, community faces slightly different challenges. And so for Asian Americans, um, it's sometimes a, a point of caricature that's usually more, <clears throat> unfortunately, more of an issue for, for the brothers in our community, mm -hmm. the, the men um, who've you know, sort of been subject to a lot of really damaging and emasculating stereotypes. Um, or it can, or, you know, the thing that affects Asian Americans across the board is erasure, right? Which is why whitewashing mm -hmm. uh, nowadays most commonly uh, is done to Asian characters, yeah. right? Uh, you know, they're the ones who get whitewashed. Like the erasure that, I mean, you know, every, like, again, w when we have concepts like banana or Twinkie, or, you know, sort of, uh, you know, I think every, many, okay, I don't want to say every, but many of us went through at least a phase where we wanted to be white or we wanted to act white. Why is that? It's be, and a lot of it is because um, when you're erased from the narrative, you want to be seen. And if these are the people that are seen, mm -hmm. these are the people that matter, you know, you're told matter. These are the stories that we're, we are telling you are worth, you know, all this money and investment and worth all this time for you to you to consume then it's that or be obsolete or or yeah. just be invisible i think that we're at a place where thankfully this is seen as part and parcel of this larger movement towards inclusion and i think it's very important for me to emphasize that you know this whole hash the whole hashtag asian august or the gold open movement and what we're seeing in terms of more unprecedented opportunities for Asian Americans would not have happened without the gains and the progress made by the Black community. Mm. That is a fact. Mm. African Americans have been working at this for a very, very long time. And um, when the door has, every time the door opens for them, it actually opens for anybody who's a person of color. Because mm -hmm. the idea is that you're, you're training audiences and also training, you know, the, the business people who, who are making this content to get used to the idea of not having to go with the white whiteness as a default. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's why there was a lot of non-Asian support for Crazy Rich Asians and for the Gold Open Movement, people who were just very excited to open the door to, you know, fresh voices in general 
Mm-hmm. I think within the community, well, you know, as you know, Asians, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not a homogenous people. And so I would say that I think the majority, it was um, pretty overwhelmingly positive. Mm-hmm. I think, though, that because there has been, because of the scarcity of representation, mm-hmm. um, inevitably, there are people who felt like they weren't represented by crazy rich Asians. Yeah. So crazy rich Asians like automatically excludes anybody who's not a rich Asian. Do you know what I mean? Like, of, of course, it's not going to represent anybody, everybody. I think there's this fear that people are like, oh, well, there's been zero stuff. And so now there's only allowed to be one thing. And if that's, if this is the one way in which Asians are represented and I'm not represented, like, I, I don't want this to be the one way in which we're represented. The fear is that Hollywood or the powers that be, the decision makers will feel like, oh, well, we've done our job. And so now let's stop exploring the stories. That yeah, yeah. won't happen if the community doesn't let it happen. Mm-hmm. That won't happen if artists, if people are inspired to create and bring in and flood the zone with more stories. And if, and if um, audience members continue to sort of express that demand and vote with their wallets. Mm-hmm. So that's why, I mean, I, I mean, I'm more optimistic than I've been ever been before. When a movie like Crazy Rich Asians succeeds, it actually opens the door to eventually get, you know, movies yeah. about middle class Asians and poor Asians and all sorts of Asians. So I did, I mean, I interviewed the producer of Joy Luck Club, Janet Yang, mm-hmm. and I asked why did we not see um, you know, the floodgates open, not even the floodgates. Why didn't we see anything, you know, mm-hmm. after Joy Luck Club? And, and part of it is a pipeline development issue. You know, back then, like she was telling me that when they made the Joy Luck Club, it wasn't even like, oh, will this play in China or whatever, you know, things were strictly for domestic release. And there was also no such thing as marketing to the Asian American community. There wasn't this sort of sense of like, where are these Asian Americans? They were just trying to market to like, let's just hope Americans, meaning like Mm -hmm. mostly white Americans show up. Um, So I think that lacking that sort of community to sort of generate a lot more content from Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then the pipeline, they did try to get a few more there. She told me about a, you know, a few other projects here and there that they, that they try to get off the ground. But, um, you know, I think that it's very hard to, to make a movie that actually travels all the way to, you know, theaters nationwide. It's, mm-hmm. there's so, I mean, you know, it's like the tip of an iceberg. Every single movie that makes it into a major movie theater is like the tip of an iceberg and below it is like a graveyard of thousands of stalled projects, you mm-hmm. know, that never make it to that point. And so in order to make it, you need a lot, you need everything to hit at the right place. And you also just need a lot of experience. You need like, you need like a hundred scripts about Asian Americans so mm. that 10 of them will get bought by studios and then five of them will, you know, receive the financing and the casting and everything. And then, you know, do you wow. know what I mean? So there's just like, not, I mean, I made up those numbers arbitrarily, <laughs> but that's what I mean is though, you just yeah. need a ton more, you need a ton more darts to throw at that dartboard. Um, yeah. And it's taken a while for, um, us to develop the infrastructure where there's more Asian American writers. I'm not saying that there never were any, there were, you know, but there were fewer than there are now. Asian American writers, Asian American directors, actors, producers, um, agents, you know, executives at the studios. Um, And it was a bit of a chicken and egg thing because um, like Alan Yang, uh, who's the co-creator of Master of None said in his Emmy winning speech, Emmy acceptance speech, 
he was like joking. He's like, hey, parents, if like a mm -hmm. couple of you would have your kid pick up a movie camera instead of a violin, that'd be really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if you haven't seen like an Asian succeed as a director in Hollywood, like why would you even try that? And so it was a chicken and egg thing. Um, so back then, I think the terrain was too underdeveloped. Interesting. Um, yeah, it wasn't for lack of trying, but just all the pieces had to be in place. I, I'm curious for you, like you committed yourself to this vision of, of like, you know, doing uh, like covering Hollywood representation for Asian Americans. Did you, could you have imagined at the beginning of your career um, writing this story, uh, the cover story with an all Asian cast? Um, I think I imagined it, but I don't know if it was a very realistic imagination, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, I think that I, I don't, I don't, I wasn't sure how it would play out. I certainly, I mean, I think that Crazy Rich Asians has succeeded beyond my, my realistic hopes. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the fact that it broke all of these records, the fact that it was number one for three weeks in a row, um, and it's like close to 200 million worldwide right now is like phenomenal. That's a hit. That's a hit movie. You know, um, I think that I was always like sort of satisfied enough with like, you know, uh, you know, being able to occasionally like cover an indie film. Like I remember the year before, uh, Justin Chan had this amazing, beautiful, wonderful film called Gook. And it's about the LA riots. It's an indie, uh, it's a great little film. And I was proud of that. And I was like, this is awesome. You know, do a Q and A here and hopefully get, get encourage people to see it. But to be part of the pop culture, like there was all these little things about Crazy Rich Asians that like, I was so delighted by that I didn't even imagine. Like I did not even imagine like, you know, there was a sketch, Henry Golding went on James Corden. They did a sketch with him and Michelle Yeoh that was like very much parroting specific parts of the movie. So in order for you to have a late night sketch parroting specific parts of something, you need to have assumed that most of America has watched this okay. thing. And so the thought that like, oh my God, most of America has watched this thing, like incredible to me, you know? Yeah. And, and little things like, um, I think being able to share this with my parents was very significant mm -hmm. because I write in English about American movies, you know, and American TV shows. And um, my mom is fairly pop culture savvy. Um, and, you know, I do a lot of translating and explaining to her, but this was something that was like, that, we, that actually spoke to us and to our experiences. And to take her to the theater for the first time since Saving Private Ryan, and thankfully, um, you know, they live in Orange County. And so I found a theater that shows movies, Hollywood movies with Chinese subtitles. So there was, you know, so she could catch every word. Mm. And, um, and oh my gosh, like she talked about me, like we talked about the movie for like weeks after that, like just That's bringing awesome. up parts. And, and, um, and that was a really cool thing because especially when I worked at Sports Illustrated, there was like <laughs> no way in which my parents could, could really experience any of my work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like Jeremy Lin was like the one. <laughs> that was unexpected. That was actually more unexpected than crazy situations happening. Um, but, but that was, that was meaningful for me personally, honestly, was the parent aspect was finally my parents could actually tangibly um, tangibly see, um, perceive what I, what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. When we think about our audience for this podcast, I, we think about a lot of young people, young adults who are just trying to navigate the world and, and, um, 
give language to some shame. And so I'm wondering if there was a word or a phrase you could give them that could help explain this experience to their peers, to their friends, to their family, and why it's so important. Mm. Um, I would probably use the words acknowledgement, validation, affirmation, because when, with, with crazy rich Asians or representation in general, right? But we're, we're using crazy rich Asians as, as sort of the most prominent example recently. Mm-hmm. When you see that on screen, again, with, with all of the, especially if you understand how, how many resources were committed to this in order to make this happen, this wasn't, it's not cheap, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which means that anything that makes the screen was worth investing millions of dollars in. Mm-hmm. And, and so if they're like, this story was worth me putting up $30 million, which is actually not a lot, relatively speaking, but still mm-hmm. committing this. I'm acknowledging that a person like you matters. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm acknowledging that a person like you exists. Mm-hmm. I'm affirming that this character's experience of feeling neither here nor there is a real feeling. Um, I'm validating that emotion. I'm validating that conflict of like, I don't know, I'm genuinely torn between my family and my love. I'm, I'm saying you're not alone. Like, look, this is a, this is a story that's, that happens to people. Um, and so I think that that's really powerful and I would say almost, if, I mean, if hope, if people are able to receive this, to, <clears throat> I would offer that if you have a hard time understanding why that's important, you've probably not grown up in a place where there's no mirrors. Hmm. I, I, that's the only way I can put it. And I almost feel, I almost feel like people are at a disadvantage um, because they're literally um, blinded by their privilege there it's they've they've grown up with so much media affirmation and saturation that they cannot imagine what it's like to not have that reflection you know i mean gosh like i remember growing up where like i would identify to like the the the, the darkest brunette on television do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like sometimes you'd watch a tv show or a movie and like like I like the girl with brown hair. That one's yes. me. You know yeah. what I mean? Right? Yeah. The bra- the brunette Barbie or Cabbage Patch. Yeah. Like starved. That is that is being that that's that's how that's how much it is in our human nature to gravitate towards somebody who is the closest thing that we can identify with. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it's sort of like you can't understand hunger if you've never been hungry. You mm-hmm. know? Um, but maybe that's maybe that feedback is too harsh for people to understand. But I but I would say acknowledgement. I would say it's it's about feeling acknowledged, and and about feeling like you know what the the reason why this is important is because um, it shows that other people thought that this person was important enough to be broadcast mm-hmm. for everybody to experience. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love that. I feel like that encompasses everything that uh, melts away that feeling of shame or that I am 
bad or I'm wrong. It's that real, not just, you know, because we talk about in the podcast, it's community, but it's really not just people around you, but it's actually this really acknowledging sense of being held, being Mm -hmm. seen, and Mm -hmm. that's what changes things. Do you have any resources that you'd like to share or any way that our um, our listeners can follow you or find you online? Sure. Well, um, so I am on Twitter. If you want to follow me, I'm at the Rebecca Sun, T H E R E B E C C A S U N. And I just wanted to recommend three. If if you're interested in sort of you know participating in or at least staying aware, uh, informed about Asian American representation in the media, um, three resources. Uh, probably you already know of these. The Angry Asian Man. We cited him before, but Phil. You has uh, it's a blog, um, angryasianman.com. But I mean, ever since I was in college, I would I would go there just to find out like the news about like what was happening. It's a pretty comprehensive like news roundup of mm-hmm. like everything happening in Asian American pop culture, pop, you know the new the local news, um, things like that. And so it's just a really good one stop shop if you're mm-hmm. like I I just want to make sure I haven't missed any headlines that are re- you know relevant to our community. Mm-hmm. Um, the second resource is more for people who are in the industry or interested in getting involved in the entertainment industry. There is an organization called CAPE, that's uh, C-A-P-E, Coalition of Asian Pacificament. And so that is sort of the affinity group for um, all of the Asian Pacific Americans who um, you know are working or want to work in Hollywood. So um, actors, writers, um, executives, uh, things like that. They have, um, CAPE runs a couple of um, annual uh, workshops um, that are, you know, you have to apply for them. So they're, they're pretty competitive, but it's a good experience. They have a new writers fellowship uh, for people who want to be television writers. Um, It's a really good training program and they have an executives workshop too for, for young business executives in Hollywood. And they do panels and lots of talks throughout the year. So that's a good resource. I think it's capeusa.org. And finally, um, I wanted to recommend um, a friend of mine, a sociologist at Biola University by the name of Nancy Wang Yuan. And Nancy is um, a huge champion of um, inclusion and, and particularly Asian American representation. And so she wrote, she published a book a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was 2016 called Real Inequality. That's real as in a cinema reel. So R-E-E-L, Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. And it kind of just goes through, it's like a great sociological text about um, the historical barriers that um, actors of color in general have faced in Hollywood. And um, so, yeah, if you're interested in those things, I would check out those resources. Great. Well, thank you so much for, thank you so much, like, for coming. This is such a big deal <laughs> to have you oh. here. So, I love talking to you, Yuna. Yeah. No, I love talking to you, too. And you have so much wisdom when it comes to this. And uh, it's just so great to have, to hear your voice. And I'm, I'm glad that you're part of this kind of trajectory that hopefully Asian Americans will go on to have more stories out there. And so maybe ours will be told too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's definitely the hope. I think that there is, um, the more any one of our projects succeeds, it really pulls up everything else. So um, I, I would just say that if you're inspired to be an artist or a storyteller or to work towards this, um, you know, please pursue it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. 
Likewise, Eunice. Thank you.